0: Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. It is Advent, that season of the church year which especially anticipates. The Lord's coming. The old covenant saints looked forward to God's advent, which finally happened when Jesus was born into the world, the eternal Son of God, taking to Himself human flesh. But in the new covenant, we still have an advent we look forward to. We look forward to Christ's final advent at the last day when He will return in glory to make heaven and earth one. And to consummate our salvation and bring us into a glorious new creation forever and ever. Where we will live in resurrection bodies and in resurrection glory for all eternity. But you know there's something really odd about Advent. Something really odd about the language we use about Advent. We talk about God's Advent, God's coming. But how can God come to His people? Isn't God always already there? To say God will arrive seems to suggest that in some way God is absent. But how can God be absent when Scripture so clearly teaches that God is present everywhere all the time? He's omnipresent. Well, we need to understand exactly what Advent means. Advent means not just that God... Arrives or God shows up, but the God arrives and comes to his people in a special way. Advent means God comes to his people to save them, to bless them, to rescue them. So yes, God was always present with his people throughout the old covenant, but he came to be with his people in a special way in the advent of Jesus, the birth of his son in human form into the world. God is with us right now. But he's not with us in the way he will be with us at the end of history in Christ's final advent. Right now, he's present in some ways, but absent in others. In the final advent, when Christ comes again in glory, he will be fully present with us in everywhere. Because all of that's true... Part of what we do during Advent is we contemplate how to live in light of the relative absence of God. We have these promises of God's future coming. We cling to those promises in hope. But what do we do in the meantime? How do we live with these unfulfilled promises? What do we do while God is away? What do we do, if I can make it very specific... What do we do between the first and the final advents of Christ? What do we do while we wait for Him to appear? A story like this one here in Mark 9 is very helpful in answering just those kinds of questions. In context, what's happened here? What's going on at this point in Mark's Gospel? Earlier in this chapter, Jesus goes up on the mountain with three of His disciples and there He is transfigured in glory. His face becomes radiant. His clothes become radiant. These three disciples get a glimpse of His true glory. But the other nine disciples are left behind. They're in the valley below. They're at the foot of the mountain. And while Jesus is away from them, they have a demon To deal with, a demon possessed boy, and they have a debate with the scribes. Their situation at the foot of that mountain, while Jesus is away on the top of the mountain, really is helpful for us because that's the situation we find ourselves in. See, really, in a way, you could say this story is a parable of Advent, it's a preview of what's coming. Jesus is with his disciples here in Mark 9, but he's going to go away from the disciples after his death and his resurrection. He's going to ascend in glory into heaven and his disciples will be left behind on earth. How will they cope in his absence? How will they handle their mission while he's away? How will they deal with demons and with debaters? See, this story is a taste of what's coming for the disciples in the future, and therefore it speaks directly to our situation, living as we do between the first and the final advents of Christ. Jesus is in heaven right now. He's in heavenly glory. We're here on earth. He's given us a mission, but there are obstacles in the way of accomplishing that mission. We have our own scribes and our own demons to deal with, This story shows us what to do and what to not. So let's look at it. Jesus and the three disciples come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. They rejoin the other nine disciples who are having some kind of disputation with the scribes. The scribes, of course, are the Jewish religious leaders. Crowds have gathered around to watch what's going on to uh, witness this debate. When they see Jesus, we're told that the crowd was greatly amazed. Now, some of the commentators on this passage have suggested they were astonished because of the after effects of Jesus' transfiguration, just like when Moses had been in the glory cloud of God on the mountaintop and then when he came down, his face was still radiant and so the people were shocked by this and and afraid of this. Maybe something like that's happening here. Maybe the face of Jesus is still dazzling. Maybe there's some transfiguration afterglow uh, still there. Maybe his clothes are still uh, unusually radiant in some way, and that's why they're so astonished. If that's the case, it's kind of odd, because on the way down the mountain, Jesus told the three disciples who were with him and who witnessed the transfiguration to not tell anyone about it, to keep it a secret until after his resurrection. Uh, It'd be rather hard to keep it a secret if... Uh, if Jesus was still shining in some supernatural way. Uh, but whatever the case, whatever the case, the people are happy to see Jesus and so they run out to greet Him. Jesus asks the scribes what the discussion is all about. He asks the scribes. No, He inserts himself between His disciples and those who are attacking them, the scribes. But before the scribes can answer the question, One in the crowd speaks up and says, Teacher, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a mute spirit who seizes him and throws him down and causes him to gnash his teeth. So I spoke to your disciples, but they couldn't cast it out. We find out as the story unfolds, this is the father... Uh, of of the boy. And there's much more that's going to happen here with him. But probably this is the backstory. Probably something like this happened. The father brought his son, hoping to find Jesus. He had heard stories of Jesus doing exorcisms and miraculous healings. So he brings his son, hoping to find Jesus, but Jesus was absent. And so who does he find instead? He finds the disciples of Jesus. And so he asks the disciples of Jesus if they can help. They try, but fail. And when they fail, the scribes moved in to take advantage of the situation, arguing probably something like, Jesus must not really be the Messiah if his disciples are powerless to deal with this demon. That's probably the backstory. That's probably what's happened here. Now, what else can we say about the condition of this boy? Uh, some modern readers of the story, I think it's kind of funny to see this, they'll say, well, obviously this boy had epilepsy and because in the first century they didn't have very much medical knowledge, they couldn't explain it scientifically or medically, and so they attribute it to a demon. That's kind of their first century attempt at a diagnosis. Clearly that's not the case here. We find throughout the Gospels, the Gospel writers know how to distinguish between a medical disease and demon possession. Jesus deals with both, But they're distinguishable. They're distinguishable even in the minds of these first century uh, folks, including the gospel writers themselves. Plus, uh, this boy, it can't just be epilepsy. Epilepsy cannot account for all the symptoms that this boy presents, all the effects described here. In fact, the further you go into this story, the more the details come out about this child's condition. For this boy, life was certainly hell on earth. Such a contrast with the immediately preceding story of the transfiguration. What happens in the transfiguration? Heaven touches down on earth. But here in this boy, you've got a little piece of hell touching earth. Look at what it says about this boy's condition. He said to gnash his teeth. He gnashes his teeth. That's actually how hell is described in other places in Scripture. Hell is depicted as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 21, Jesus asks, how long has he had this condition? Now again, Jesus here is not a doctor asking questions to fill out a medical chart so he can stick it on the end of the patient's bed in a hospital. That's not what's going on here. Jesus wants to get this information about the boy's condition out in public so everyone will see the severity of his condition and that nothing has been able to be done about his condition. He's been this way since he was a little child. And that's hugely significant because in this part of Mark's Gospel, this kind of midsection of Mark's Gospel, especially this chapter and the next, there is a lot about little children. We're going to see this in the weeks to come. I'm not going to go into all this this morning. We'll do it in the weeks to come. He's had this condition since he was a little child. Throughout this part of Mark's Gospel, we encounter a lot of teaching about little children and even little children themselves. We'll get into all that in the weeks to come. But what you see emerging in this part of Mark's Gospel is a contrast between a demonic attitude towards children, seeking to destroy them or at least disregard them, contrasted with Jesus' own attitude towards children, embracing them, loving them, blessing them. That's a contrast that emerges here, something that's significant to the story. We also find out that the boy is not only mute, but also deaf. The demon has taken away not only his speech, but his hearing as well. Which means he's cut off from community. It means he's isolated. If you can't hear and you can't speak... There's a kind of isolation that comes with that. This kind of isolation is clearly not what God desires for us. It's not what God designed for us. See, as humans, we are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of a God who is a trinity. God is a community of Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a society of love. Father, Son, and Spirit are continually speaking to one another, at hearing one another, and speaking back. To one another. Because we're made in the image of this God, we're made for community. We're made to be spoken to and to speak in return. To commune with one another in love. This boy can't do that. Imagine having a son with this kind of condition and not being able to speak words of comfort to him and know that he'll hear them. Imagine not being able to hear from your child what's wrong for him to describe what it's like so that you might be able to give more help. But I think really in this story, something else is going on. Certainly all of that's true at a historical level. But I think there's also possibly here an allusion to the idolatry that has overtaken the nation of Israel. An allusion perhaps to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 gives us that great principle, we become like what we worship. That's why if you worship the triune God, you throw yourself ever more deeply into community, into relationships of love, because God exists in relationships of love. You become like what you worship. If that's the God you worship, that's what you become like. You begin to mirror that more and more at a human level. But Psalm 115 describes idols. It says idols are mute and deaf. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have ears but cannot hear. And those who make them and those who worship them become like them. It could be, the way this story works, it could be that this boy's physical condition is supposed to symbolize the spiritual condition of Israel at this point in history. Indeed, I think we see that confirmed if we go further into the description of his condition here. The unclean spirit tries to kill the boy. How? By throwing him into fire and water. Now, fire and water have played a big part in Israel's history up to this point. For example, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and oppressed in Egypt, Egypt was called a furnace of affliction for Israel. A kind of fire that Israel was thrown into. In fact, I think that's symbolized in Exodus chapter 3 by the burning bush. Israel is in the furnace of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, but isn't being consumed by the flames. God's enemies, the enemies of God's people are often described in in this way, by fire. Likewise, the enemies of God's people are often described in terms of water. All throughout the Old Testament, the Gentile nations that threaten Israel's existence are depicted by the roaring sea, the foaming waves of the sea. So Israel is the land people, the Gentile nations are the sea people. The sea is seeking to flood the land and overwhelm it and overcome it. Fire and water represent all that threatens Israel throughout her history. But you know what else is interesting? Fire and water also become instruments of deliverance for Israel in God's hand. And so in the Exodus, how is Israel rescued? Israel crosses through the Red Sea, unharmed by the waters, while those waters then close in on Pharaoh and his chariots and drown them. In the book of Daniel, there are three faithful Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are thrown into the fiery furnace. A fiery furnace that symbolizes Israel's exile. But these three faithful Hebrews survive and are even strengthened by this trial. They come forth from the flames stronger than ever. In Isaiah 43, Dave read it for us this morning, Isaiah 43, fire and water show up as a pair. God says to His people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be consumed. You will not be burned. Psalm 66, same pair shows up. The psalmist says, we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Indeed, even in Israel's sacrificial system, fire and water were means of drawing near to God. In the sacrificial system of the temple, Israelites would draw near to God through fire and water. Water which washed the sacrifices. Fire that consumed them on God's altar, turning them into smoke as they ascended into the heavenly glory cloud of God. So fire and water in God's hands become instruments of blessing, instruments of salvation. But in the hands of God's enemies, fire and water, harm and destroy. And that's how it is for this boy. For this boy, fire and water are the demon's chosen methods as he seeks to destroy the boy. Now what does Jesus do with all of this? When the father of the boy sees the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, when the the father of the boy says the disciples could not cast out the demon, Jesus cries out, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? You can just sense the tone of exasperation coming through in his voice. He's frustrated. He's frustrated not just with the people gathered here, but with this whole generation of Israelites. What's happening here is representative of what's going on in Israel. See, what exactly does he mean by this? Whose faithlessness is he frustrated with? I mean, for Israel to be fa- to be faithless is not exactly a new problem. In fact, that language of faithless generation actually goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, to the Song of Moses. Psalm ninety-five, you have something similar at a later date. Uh, Psalm ninety-five laments the faithlessness of another generation of Israelites. If you read through the prophetic books of the Old Testament, you find that the prophets are constantly accusing Israel of faithlessness. Repeatedly accusing Israel of failing to be faithful to her God. Who's being called faithless here? Is it the Father? Is it the disciples? Is it the scribes? Ultimately, it's all of the above. They're all sort of the bullseye of the target of this accusation of faithlessness. They're all part of a faithless Generation, And because they are a faithless generation, Jesus knows His time is short. His end, meaning His death, is drawing near. A faithless generation is not going to put up with Him much longer. A faithless generation is going to crucify the Messiah God has sent. Now Jesus here says they're faithless. The whole story here really turns out to be about faith. It's really about faithlessness versus faithfulness. Will the disciples, will the Father, will the scribes trust in God and in the Messiah He has sent or not? That's really what this is about. Well, Jesus lets out this cry of exasperation. The Father makes a final desperate plea in verse 22. He says, if if you can do anything, please have compassion and help us. See, the failure of the disciples has left the Father severely doubting whether or not His Son can be saved, whether or not His Son can be helped at all. He's totally discouraged at this point. But Jesus pushes back hard against the Father. And he makes it clear the issue here is not if Jesus can help. The issue is if the Father can believe. Because as Jesus says to him, to the one who believes, all things are possible. The issue is not, is Jesus willing to help? The issue is, is the Father willing to trust? It's not Jesus' power that's in question here. It's the man's faith. Well, then the father answers back in one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. He doesn't just call Jesus teacher here. He calls him Lord, which I think shows you he's moving in the right direction. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Notice the change here? He changes his request from help my son to help me. And that's critical. That's key. That's he recognizes here, it's really his unbelief that is the obstacle. His unbelief is a bigger obstacle than the demon that's possessing his boy. And he confesses here to have faith, but he confesses it's a weak faith, a, a mixed faith, a doubting faith, a struggling faith, a feeble faith, a faith that needs help. I think every one of us can relate to the Father here. Uh, we all, I'm sure, have times where our faith seems to waver, where our faith seems to be locked in a battle with unbelief, where faith is a struggle. There's times where faith seems to be assailed by doubts and faith starts to waver. The Father's plea here, I believe, but help my unbelief, I think is the plea of every true Christian. If not for the whole of the Christian life, at least for many parts of it. There several things here, several things this indicates about faith and the role that faith plays. The Father here is desperate and humble. There is not a trace of self-sufficiency or self-adequacy or arrogance. In his words, he knows, at this point, he knows he is utterly dependent upon Christ and all he can do is cast himself upon Christ's mercy. These words, I believe but help my unbelief, really amount to a prayer offered in total humility and self-abandonment. He has become poor in spirit. He knows he has no resources of his own. Further, the Father here acknowledges that faith is a gift. He knows he can't conjure up his own faith. His faith will not be self-produced. He can't make himself believe faith must be given to him from the outside. Faith is a gift. And he learns here too that faith is really the key to knowing Jesus and to receiving the benefits of Jesus. See, faith really is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. We start by faith, we grow by faith, we finish by faith. That's why Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. We are united to Christ by faith, we grow in Christ's likeness by faith. Faith for us means looking to Jesus even though we don't see Him. Faith means taking hold of Jesus even though we can't touch Him. Faith means relying on the goodness of Jesus and the love of Jesus, even when every trace of His goodness and love seems to have vanished from your life. That's what it means to trust Jesus. This trust, this faith, unites us to Jesus in whom we have every spiritual blessing, in whom we have everything we could ever need. All things pertaining to life and godliness are given to us. In him, When we put our trust in Him. Well, the Father in this plea has demonstrated true faith. Weak faith, but faith nonetheless. And because He shows this faith, even though it is weak faith, Jesus now acts and He acts in power. Even weak faith connects us with the power of the Saviour. And so what does Jesus do? He commands the deaf and dumb spirit to come out of the boy and to enter him no more. This will be a permanent deliverance. But the drama is not over. The unclean spirit cries out and convulses the boy one last time and then departs. But there's a problem. The problem is the boy appears to be dead. Dead. At least that's what the crowd thinks. The crowd thinks the boy is dead. And of course, if the boy is dead, it means the demon, even though he's been cast out, it means the demon wins. That's what the demon wanted, after all, was to destroy the boy, to kill the boy. And if that's happened, the demon has won. But look at verse 27. Jesus takes the boy by the hand. Raised, Jesus raised him up and he arose. So interesting, the language that Mark uses to describe this. Not one, but two words for resurrection show up in this one verse. Two resurrection words here right next to each other. Jesus raised him up, and he arose. It is interesting, throughout Mark's Gospel, almost everyone who gets healed in Mark's Gospel is said to arise. Why is that? It's because Mark wants us to know where the power comes from. He wants us to understand all of these healings are really mini resurrections. They are previews of the power to come when Jesus himself arises from the dead. For Jesus to touch this boy and heal this boy is to make this boy a sharer in his resurrection life. To be touched by Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, means his resurrection life has broken into your own life means the the power of the life to come has broken into the present. The power of the world to come has invaded the present. That's what happens with this board. Well, then we have the aftermath of the story. The disciples get alone with Jesus and in private ask Him, why couldn't we cast this demon out? Why did we fail? Why did we have a power outage, so to speak? After all, the disciples have performed successful exorcisms earlier in Mark's Gospel. You go back and you look at the beginning of Mark 6 when they're sent out on a missionary journey. They've got authority. They've got power to cast out demons. So we know that the the disciples are exorcists. They've been able to do this before. What went wrong here? Why couldn't they do it here? So they ask Jesus this question in private and He answers them but I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, oh, you know, guys, uh, you were just in over your heads in this particular case. There's no way you ever could have been expected to deal with such a difficult problem, such a strong demon. No, the whole reason Jesus has been exasperated and frustrated is because He expected them to be victorious. He expected them to drive out this demon, to have victory over this demon and he's frustrated at their failure. They should have been able to, and they fail. Now Jesus says this kind can only come out, that is, this kind of demon can only come out by prayer and fasting. Some ancient manuscripts only have prayer. I don't think it much matters. Really, fasting is just a form of enacted prayer anyway. What is fasting? Fasting is when we abstain from food so that our physical hungers... Join our voices in crying out to God. Like prayer, fasting is a sign of dependence and self-denial. It's a way of saying, God, we know that life and everything that, that we need for life comes only from you. In prayer, our hearts hunger for God. In fasting, our bodies hunger as well. And that physical hunger becomes a reminder to us, a painful reminder, that ultimately only God can satisfy our deepest it's So prayer, fasting, that really blends into one answer. Now some like to speculate here based on the way Jesus answers this question. Are some demons greater than others? Are some demons stronger than others so that exercising them is more difficult? Probably so. That probably is what Jesus is indicating here. But I think to speculate that about that too much is to really miss the point. The real issue here is this. No matter how strong the demon, no matter how stubborn the darkness, the church can defeat demons and powers of darkness if she will only pray and fast. What that means, what Jesus is saying here is this. Power for mission comes through prayer. That's really the point. Power for mission comes through through prayer. Now, why is that? Why is that? Think about what prayer is here. Think about what happens when we pray. When we pray, we draw near to God. Prayer is the most primal, basic action of faith. A faithless generation is not going to pray, but where there is faith, there certainly will be prayer. Prayer is faith's native language, so to speak. It's just the language faith speaks. Faith speaks to God. And that's prayer. You could say our prayers reveal the kind of faith we have. You know, we live in a culture where there is a whole lot of talk about faith. And it doesn't really get defined. You hear talk about faith in sports. Athletes do it. Uh, you hear about it in pop culture. Celebrities do it. Even in politics. Even our politicians will talk a lot about faith. And we've got these slogans like, don't stop believing, or you got to have faith, or keep the faith. What do they mean? What kind of faith is that? You know, we hear about faith again and again, but it's this vague, sentimental, undefined kind of thing that, that maybe at most amounts to something like the power of positive thinking, kind of this naive optimism that everything's going to turn out okay in the end. But it's 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 really a faith that has No object. There's no real object there that faith is clinging to or believing in. It's just kind of this fuzzy optimism that everything's going to be okay. That kind of faith can't really give rise to prayer, not in any meaningful sense anyway. That's not the kind of faith in view in this passage. The faith here is a faith that expresses itself in prayer that is directed specifically to Jesus or to the Father of Jesus. It's faith with an object. It's faith that clings to truth. So what does prayer mean? Prayer means drawing near to the true God. It means entering into communion with the triune God. It means sharing in His life. It means entering into the divine counsel. Indeed, we could say in prayer, those who are on the foot of the mountain ascend the Lord's holy hill to where Jesus is enthroned. In prayer, believers on earth enter into the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly most holy place. In prayer, we enter into the divine presence. We come into the throne room of God. We come before the throne of grace. And so prayer, the prayer of faith, connects us to all the possibilities of God's power. In prayer, we access God's throne room power. It's interesting. What Jesus says about faith in Mark 9, 24 is really a lot like what he says about prayer in other places in passages like John 14, 23. Here Jesus says of faith, all things are possible for him who believes. In John, he says a prayer, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. In one place, it sounds like faith makes all things possible. In another place, it sounds like prayer makes all things possible. I think Mark 11, 24 resolves any dilemma that's there because it links prayer and faith together explicitly in this way. There, Jesus says, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. That's the prayer of faith. Martin Luther once said that prayer is not so much overcoming God's reluctance as it is laying hold of His willingness. Prayer is how we lay hold of God's power. The prayer of faith is how we take hold of God's resurrection power, God's demon-destroying power, God's death-defeating power. Because in the prayer of faith, we come to share in Christ's own life. And Let me close with this. This is the season of Advent. This is an Advent sermon. And there is an Advent lesson here for us. In Advent, we learn to long for Christ's final coming and the consummation of our redemption. We live with that hope for his final coming. But while Jesus is on the mountain in glory, and we are in the valley below, while He's in heaven and we're on earth, we have work to do. We have a mission to do. There are unclean spirits that need to be driven out. Spirits of poverty. Spirits of addiction. Spirits of sexual perversion. Spirits of gay marriage. Spirits of violence. Spirits of unjust war, spirits of racism, spirits of oppression, spirits of false religion, spirits of greed. All of these unclean spirits are deceitful, they're powerful, they're stubborn. If you want to see these spirits at work, if you want to see their agenda, what they're up to, all you have to do is click on the news. That's really what the news covers is the forces of darkness at work. It it charts the activities of the principalities and powers. Satan's undercover operations, uh, if you will. What do we do? What do we do in the face of all of these spirits of darkness haunting our world? We can't just resign ourselves to the status quo and accept defeat. We can't just say, well, Satan's alive and well on planet Earth. And Satan's very powerful, and this is just a time of darkness, and there's, there's really not anything we can do about it. Nor can we use God's sovereignty as an excuse and hide behind our doctrine of God's providence. We can't just say, oh, well, clearly God in His sovereignty has ordained for us to live in these troubled times, these dark times, and darkness is just part of His plan for this era we live in, and so there's no use fighting. No. No, no, we can't do that. We have a mission to carry on in Christ's absence. And we can succeed in that mission. To the church that prays in faith, all things are possible. The believing, praying church can throw down the gates even of hell itself. See, people in our culture are a lot like this boy's father. They know things aren't right. They know they're living lives shrouded in darkness and defeat. And they want someone who can help. Jesus isn't on earth, and so who are they going to find instead when they turn for help? They're going to find Jesus' disciples, Jesus' church. Will we be able to help? Will we be able to cast out the demons and and, and rescue people from darkness and from distress? Jesus has left, but His power has not. If we believe, all things are possible. If we pray, all things are possible. If wickedness and evil seem to be prospering and triumphing if we as the church seem to be failing to spread the gospel or failing to transform and disciple our culture, it's not because the demons are too strong. It's because we haven't trusted and prayed as we should have. The real culprit is not Satan. It's our own unbelief. It's not that Satan is too strong. It's that our faith is too weak. It's not that Satan is too big, it's that our prayers are too small. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we may not be possessed by a spirit of unbelief but that we might trust in Christ in whom all things are possible because in Him all power in heaven and earth resides. Father, we pray that You would help us to overcome our lack of trust, our faithlessness, our prayerlessness. We pray that You would help us to be overcomers and more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who has already won the victory for us. May we look to Him, trust in Him, pray to Him, For this kind of deliverance, this we ask in his name, amen.